This is the current federal tax developments for the week of April the 19th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and Kaplan Financial Education. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're coming again this week from Phoenix, and we're going to discuss with you some of the developments we had this week, maybe a couple of them at this point may seem a little late to learn about, but we'll discuss them because at least from the perspective of what it means going forward. So we'll take a look at that. But the first discussion we'll have will actually go back to look at something that is a piece of law that you may suspect, well, it doesn't matter anymore, but it does. While we do no longer have the issue coming up with divorces that take place today, about whether payments under those divorces will or will not be treated as alimony, we do have that problem for every divorce in place before 2019. So we need to be aware of what the definitions are. And in this particular case, we're going to look at the question of whether a judge's cover letter that indicated that the spouse in this case was not going to pay tax on the distributions due to a continuing problem of the parties agreeing on a gross distribution, if that turned out to be enough to mean that the ex-spouse no longer had to pick that up as alimony, or at least never did have to pick it up as alimony. We're also going to take a look at a private letter ruling that is interesting primarily because it discusses what is considered to be a medical expense. Going to look at a fundamental part of that definition. Now, it is an interesting one because it was adverse for the parties asking for it, but they wanted a negative one anyway, it begins to make me wonder if we are setting up for some litigation here uh, where they're going to challenge it. They fully knew they would get a negative. They were going to ask for a negative first, though, which would presumably allow them to then raise the question in court. I'm going to see if they're going to go that route, but it's kind of interesting where they're going. We also have the IRS making a couple of announcements about that April 15th extension. And yes, I know it's now past April 15th, but we are going to discuss the implications of what they've said here, especially if you assume the opposite of what the IRS has just ruled, or at least assumed the opposite in a way that could, you believe, come back to haunt you. We'll talk about that particular issue. So we'll talk about gift tax returns and the fact their due dates were not extended on April the 15th. And we'll also talk about the issue of applying an overpayment on a 2020 return to the 2021 estimates and in what situations, which we did discover there are going to be some, will that application count as a payment against the first quarter estimate tax? And I guess the good news here is that the IRS was not as absolutely, let's say, anti-taxpayer as you might have thought they could have been. We discussed that last week. But they also were not super pro-taxpayer, which really didn't surprise me either, given the reason that the commissioner had given for not allowing us to make those estimates in May as well as have the tax return come in May. So in one sense, I wasn't terribly surprised by the ruling we got. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at, in this case, one of the type of case we don't look at real often, but this is a tax court bench opinion. And this is the case of Reagan versus commissioner. Because it's a bench opinion, we're not going to have any sort of special title here. You know, it's not going to be a tax court memo or a tax court summary. It apparently would have been a summary opinion had we gone that route. 
So in one sense, I guess it's, you know, it's one of those things that we're going to take a look at here. You can't really cite this thing. You couldn't theoretically for the summary opinion anyway. But it does give an aspect of applying the law to a very messy divorce fact pattern. Now, you may be thinking, well, wait, alimony no longer matters because we had the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which essentially provided that, you know, no longer is Section 71, the alimony provision in the code. It's simply gone. Well, yes, but no. It's not gone for any divorce decree that was final and is not substantially amended after December 31st of 2019. Right. Or doesn't have a substantial amendment there that the parties don't agree. Yeah, we're going to go ahead and go into the new law. So it's an it's a rule that still applies because we have a lot of clients who at the end of 2018 were divorced. Right. And there are payments still being made under agreements there. In this particular case, we're looking at agreement that was actually the divorce was finalized. Well, pretty much finalized, put it that way, in 2003. In theory, we still have one problem that hasn't yet quite been resolved. And that's what leads us to this case. But we had basically had a, a divorce. The parties had agreed to split up. And so we're looking here back 18 years ago. But they had agreed to that the wife was going to receive a payment, that the husband was going to be able to claim a deduction for alimony paid, but the amount of the payment was going to be set in such a way so that the wife would end up receiving, the parties would agree, an amount that would net her X dollars per month, yeah, basically after tax. So obviously that was something the judge was not computing that. The judge said, you guys go negotiate this, come back, and until such time as you do, you're going to pay her X dollars, and we realize this is meant to be the net that she gets. And you guys, you know, in theory, I am sure the judge, she probably believed, you know, these guys can get out of there. This is not that difficult to figure out. You're probably thinking the same thing yourself. And so basically they, they should probably be able to come back to me in a month or so and give me that number. I've told them what we're aiming for, what my decision was. So they can come back, give me the proper gross number, and, you know, we'll just finalize this whole thing. Well, it turned out that the spouses had trouble agreeing on this issue. And in fact, the spouse was receiving the payment. Reportedly, she made multiple attempts to get her ex to actually come together and make an agreement. It does not appear he was being very cooperative. Uh, it appears he got behind on the payments anyway. So maybe at that point, you don't care if they're gross or net etc. But this went on for a long time. Finally, you know, the, the judge basically gave a ruling that said eventually, and she came in, in this case, a few months later, and they hadn't agreed. It was supposed to be a quick agreement. They hadn't agreed. So she modified her agreement in 2003 and said in September of 2003, she actually modified twice. But when she came back, she said, okay, we're going to do it this way now. So we're going to go ahead and award you this alimony that is paid net and made that permanent, you know, at least until the parties someday can agree. But in a cover letter that went with it, she also mentioned that the spouses, essentially, let's say, or that the payment, 
then this net amount of $6,279 per month that was being received by Mrs. Reagan, uh, by Ms. Reagan, I should say, was going to be non-taxable to her. You know, that's the idea because this was supposed to be her net. So until such time, it's non-taxable. Now, arguably, the judge maybe should have put that in the agreement, should have put the right wording in where it wouldn't be treated as alimony and had those rulings. Because if you remember right, remember, for something to be alimony under federal tax law, there really are essentially four criteria involved to being alimony. And so basically, they must be received under a divorce or separation instrument. Well, her order would qualify as that. That instrument must not designate the payment as not includable in gross income and not allowable as deduction under Section 215. That's what we're talking about fighting over here. Third, uh, the two spouses must not be members of the same household. That was not a problem. They weren't living together. And the liability to make the payments must terminate after the death of the payee spouse. And nobody was arguing that that wasn't on the table. She wasn't arguing that, wait, he'd still have to pay my estate. That wasn't being argued. So everybody agreed everything except did the judge's cover letter amount to what would be effectively be a designation, the instrument designated that the payment would be not includable in her income. And that was kind of our fight. Now, the IRS went back and they took a look at an old case. And they looked at a case of Jaffe versus Commissioner from 1999. And in that case, the court noted uh, that, you know, divorce instruments stated that the payors shall be responsible for income taxes too. Well, in that case, the tax court ruled, well, that doesn't necessarily mean you wouldn't pay tax. You know, the recipient would not pay tax. It is possible that the payor could have to gross it up. There could be various other ways that could have been fixed. So it wasn't obvious from the document itself, which otherwise met the criteria to be a payment of alimony under federal law. And please remember, it doesn't matter what state law calls it. There were a case a number of years ago that took a look at what's in Florida called lump sum alimony, which Hank Gang, not federal tax alimony, period. Uh, even if it was, you know, a, an agreement back in 19 you know, and let's say 1999 or in 2012, it doesn't matter. Lump sum alimony was not alimony. As well, a payment stream that the court might even say is not alimony under, you know, the state law of fill in the blank could still be federal tax law alimony if it meets the four criteria. And it's not disguised child support. Remember, there's also that little test. You also have the front end loaded rules that, yeah, it gets messy. Part of the th reason why, the idea of taking alimony out of this and just saying not not taxable, not deductible, uh, made it a much simpler tax code in that area. But in any event, the IRS said, hey, look, this case is like Jaffe, right? You know, the agreement didn't say how we're going to resolve this. But the court said, no, IRS, we don't agree. Now, the IRS said you can only read the judge's order. And the judge's order did not really state openly what was to be done, but they said, but her cover letter reasonably should be considered part of those documents, those instruments that took care of the divorce. They do, you know, it would be enforced by the court. It was part of what the agreement, what the judge arrived at in her decision. 
And therefore, these payments that were being received by Ms. Reagan were not to be considered to be alimony payments. So again, the case of Reagan versus Commissioner, case number 16251-17S. It actually was released on March the 11th, but just kind of got published out generally this week. So interesting case, obviously, alimony continues. Don't forget that. That's also why it's important if you get a new client these days who's receiving payments of any sort related to a divorce or making payments of any sort related to a divorce that was finalized before the end of 2018, you absolutely need to see the divorce documents. Be very careful. Do not, absolutely do not accept the statement of counsel, right? Unless counsel is going to put it in writing and be liable for it, which they won't, believe me. That's not what they're going to do. You're the tax expert. You're the person. You have to understand that a family law attorney quite often, and tax attorneys say this too, you know, very quickly, that a family law attorney is going to concentrate only on whether something is alimony under state law and, you know, make statements like, well, you can't have alimony under the law of X. It's like, yes, you can. Every state, you could have had federal tax law alimony. It doesn't matter. If you meet the criteria, I don't care that the state may have gotten rid of the alimony statute. Kind of irrelevant. If you rig up a payment structure that's agreed to in the divorce prior to the end of 2018, you got that done, it's going to be alimony. So you have to read and study it. I do know of cases where CPAs have ended up on the wrong side of complaints, lawsuits, etc., because they didn't get the divorce document and they took the word of either the client or the attorney, right? And it turns out that it clearly did or did not qualify. And the CPA should have been aware of that. If you just had the document, it would have been clear which way it would have gone. So be careful there on the divorce issues. But in this case, the court was very simple. That letter from the judge, it was part of the order. Next up, we have a private letter ruling from the 9th of April. This is PLR 2021-14001. And this particular case looks at a question that is going to come up that's going to involve an issue we've actually discussed before, or at least I've certainly written up before. That is the definition of medical expenses under Section 213 of the Code. More specifically, the definition under 213-D1A. And that definition, medical care, deductible medical care, and this is key. Now, please remember, this is something we get in trouble with when trying to deal with tax law. Don't just accept a term at face value. In many cases, there will be a specific definition attached. You know, for instance, medical care. Well, you know, let's say my neighbor is getting treatment for whatever disease, right? is getting treatment for whatever disease and being provided that treatment by her doctor, right? Well, okay, that's medical care, you think, right? It is, but not to me from a tax standpoint because I'm not related to that person, right? I, you know, she's not my dependent. She's not my spouse, right? She has no relationship except we live in the same neighborhood. 
Now, what she receives is medical care in the general definition of what's medical care. But it's not medical care in the tax definition. Why? Because the tax definition uh, says, essentially, amounts paid for the taxpayer, right? In this case, for the diagnosis, um, cure, mitigation, treatment, prevention of disease, or for the purpose of affecting any structure or function of the body. So medical care has to affect the taxpayer or a taxpayer's dependent. I get deductions for that type of medical care. I don't get deductions for medical care in general unless it affects, meets that criteria. Now, this gets into interesting issues when we're talking about, you know, various options for dealing with or having children especially if the parties in question cannot themselves have children in the traditional manner. And in this particular case, though it, it affects other situations too, but this was a, you know, a couple, two men. Obviously, they aren't going to have children on their own, right? In this case, we're going to have to go to other means to have children. Specifically, they were looking for a ruling, you know, that says that they should be able to consider. So they're going to go out here. They're going to get an egg donor. You know, they're going to get somebody who's going to agree to carry the child to term. They're going to have to get, you know, all of the stuff done for, you know, in vitro fertilization, medical costs, uh, all of these issues, childbirth for the surrogate mother, expenses, all of those things. They were asking for they want a ruling that all of these in their situation would be medical expenses. Medical expenses directly attributable to both spouses. Egg retrieval, medical expenses of sperm donation, sperm freezing, IVF medical costs, childbirth expenses for the surrogate, medical, medical insurance related to the pregnancy for the surrogate, legal and agency fees for the surrogacy, and any other medical expenses arising from the surrogacy. Now, the ruling goes out and kind of talks about some basics here. And so, for instance, and like I said, it is important whether it affects the person, you know, the taxpayer or a taxpayer's dependent or somebody who would be the dependent if it wasn't for the gross income test. So they provide more than half support, all those special rules that we can get a medical deduction. Now, they pointed out, if you go back, the IRS did rule back in the 70s uh, revenue ruling 73201 and 73603, that expenses for vasectomies and operations that render a woman incapable of having children are medical expenses because they affect a structure or function of the body of the taxpayer. So those are fine. And you want to point that out because the issue here is they're not medical expenses because of the ultimate goal of having or not having a child. That goal's not the issue, and I think that's what has become crucial here. Rather, the issue is, does whatever is done affect, you know, the structure or function of the body of the taxpayer or a dependent of the taxpayer? The problem in this case is that the medical expense deduction is construed narrowly, and for it to be deductible, there has to be a, ca a causal relationship between a medical condition and expenditures occurred in treating condition on the taxpayer, right? 
They say the current facts in this question, the court found, or the ruling found, do not identify medical condition, nor do taxpayers' alleged expenses occurred to treat a medical condition. Right? You know, they're, they're claiming, though, that, hey, you know, it, this, I, this in vitro fertilization, surrogacy-related costs are for the purpose of affecting any structure or function of the body. The problem they've got, though, is the body being affected is not the body of either spouse or a dependent of either spouse, for the most part. And they go back to the Mad, to the Mad, Madeline, Madeline course, court case from 2008, which was basically the same facts and came to the same conclusion. The cost of paying for the surrogacy Right, most of the costs of the surrogacy were not going to be medical deductions. So, for instance, you know, any care for the surrogate mother, uh, the actual in vitro fertilization itself, which takes place on the surrogate mother, right? The insurance for the surrogate mother, the cost, you know, the cost of the childbirth for the surrogate mother, none of those are deductible medical expenses to the taxpayers. They are to the surrogate mother, right? You know. In that, and we get into that whole gift of medical expenses, and whether you can claim a deduction on that. There was an old tax court case, I believe, it, yeah, I believe it was tax court a number of years ago that did hold that. Yeah, it was a non, it was a gift from person to person receiving medical care, but that person receiving medical care could still deduct on Schedule A. So the problem here is the wrong person in theory. I don't think the IRS agreed with that theory. Uh, so they may still fight there, but I would say the mother, surrogate mother has a pretty good argument, but everybody else is kind of stuck, right? And again, they were incurred to affect the human body, but it's not the body of the person who is a, who is either of the spouses, nor are they going to take the stretch, which I guess is the second way you can try this to say, well, it's affecting the function of a body to be brought into being. Right, the uh, the child. They haven't really gone that direction either. That is one other argument I could see them trying in court to stretch this by saying, "Well, yeah, but it treats that it treats a future dependent." I we'll see if that goes. I mean, I'm thinking more. They're going to try to argue some sort of discrimination provision here, because if you think about a female couple, right. Obviously, there, there still would be costs incurred for getting sperm donor, etc. But most of the costs involved would then apply to one of the two spouses, right? Because, in essence, unless you got a surrogate mother, in addition, you would probably have the other expenses would still be there, right? There would still be, it could be in vitro, it could be, you know, through various other mechanisms, but basically, whatever you paid the sperm donor for anything involving the sperm donor's medical treatment, yeah, wouldn't be deductible. But obviously, it makes a difference here as to, you know, the affecting the structure of the body routine here. Now, this is really not that unusual. I mean, it, it is a ruling. It's something we've seen the IRS do before. There was a 2009 private letter ruling where a woman who had had a double mastectomy was attempting to argue that for her newborn child, the cost of formula should count as a medical expense since due to her you know, double mastectomy, she was unable to breastfeed the child. Kind of obvious, you know, that that would be an issue. And the court again there held, or the IRS did a private letter ruling, same problem, right? 
Now, that one is a little more interesting because, okay, obviously the cost for the formula were maybe due to an issue with the mother's, the taxpayer's body, but it wasn't treating. It was no sort of treatment. It was not affecting the function of anything. And the flip side of that was for the child there, well, there there was an impact, but they said the problem there is that's just replacing normal nutrients. And we do have special court cases in the past about food. And if you have to have food that is of a sufficiently specialized nature, that it's not just merely providing the base nutrition, then that can be medical food, but otherwise you don't get the deduction. So again, the problem of who are we treating and whose impact and how it's done, those definitions get really interesting and troublesome. Now, in this case, they did say, well, obviously some expenses like the sperm retrieval and, you know, the treatments on the sperm, all the sperm treatments that you'll get into in this, those obviously would still be medical treatment because there the affected body was one of the two spouses. So that is a medical treatment. But the generic one, no, doesn't count. They're saying, sorry, that's not a medical expense. Now let's talk about the IRS's rulings here this week on a couple of issues that we, uh, you know that that we were hoping for some answers from, and unfortunately didn't get until the 12th of April. And the first one here was posted by the IRS, and again very quietly, it went on their "What's New Estate and Gift Tax" page on the IRS's website. It was posted on April the 12th, and the question it was trying to deal with was: ever since the IRS first announced back on St. Patrick's Day that there was going to be this extension to May 17th for Form 1040s, and you'd be able to file your 4868s on May 17th if you want to get an extension until October 15th. There was this big question still out there about what about gift tax returns? As you know, normally, if you file a 4868, you're going to extend the individual return. That automatically would grant you an extension on the time to file the gift tax return because they put the two forms together. So no longer did you have to file a separate extension form, the form 8892, to ask for an extension of time to file a gift tax return. Rather, you could accomplish this by simply filing the original, you know, filing the 4868. And we even kind of gotten rid of the old block. We used to have to check to say, yeah, I'm doing a gift tax return. Well, what about this year if we file that on May the 17th? Well, the IRS said, first thing is, gift tax returns were not extended until May 17th by their general relief. My guess is, if we were to ask the commissioner, he would again say that this would enable rich people who are going to be paying gift taxes to avoid paying the taxes in a timely manner. So that's why they cracked down on it. Okay, and take that for whatever you think, but that would be the that would almost certainly be the theory offered. The IRS said, well, here's the catch. So the only two ways to get a gift tax return extended this year. Number one, if a Form 4868 was filed on or before April 15th, then it would extend both like traditional. So if by last Thursday you had filed the 4868 to extend the time to file the individual return, then you would have had an extension of time for the gift tax return automatically until October 15th. However, if Thursday went by 
and you did not file the 4868, then what you would have had to do to get an extension on the gift tax return would be to file the Form 8892. That is the application for automatic extension of time to file Form 709 and or payment of gift generation skipping transfer tax. You know, they, they said basically that's it. They did say you can still go ahead and file the 4868 after filing that form. Some people were concerned the way it was written. It suggested that if you filed that form, you might have waived your right to file an extension for the individual return. They're saying, no, nope, that, that, that's not really what's happening. So essentially, you need to file, you need to have filed the 8892 by Thursday, or your gift tax return is now late. Now, the real question I think a lot of you are going to have, because obviously at this point you can't turn the clock back, at least we haven't really found a way to do that one yet that I know of that's going to turn the clock back for you, let you go back to last Wednesday and, you know, restart, thir you know, restart Thursday. Question is, what's the impact going to be? Well, obviously, if there's gift tax due, then it was supposed to have been paid on Thursday and you have a failure to file penalty. And that, that would be bad because generally we're going to assume, and I would assume that in most cases, if you're looking at somebody who's given away enough to exceed the gift tax limitations, my guess is the gift tax due is going to be fairly substantial because, you know, we already, we've got somebody who's already chewed through you know, $11 million of gifting, I really wonder about, you know, are they really going to bother with $200? No, they're probably making multiple million dollar figure, multiple million dollar gifts, which is going to be a significant gift tax and now a significant penalty. Hopefully you're not in that position. The one that may see more often though, uh, which could have an impact is if you aren't making an election, you have to make a override election on GSTT exemption as part of the gift tax return. That particular issue where you change the allocation of GSTC exemption from the default, that does have a special rule. It can be made on a late return, but the valuation of the property for which you're going to make the election is going to move forward if it would increase the amount of the exemption that's going to be used up. And that's normally a bad thing. So probably the GSTT exemption problem is the biggest one for most of us if a gift tax return was not filed, if a gift, if a gift tax return extension was not filed. So be aware of that. If your client just didn't, you know, they made a, you know, let's say they made a $200,000 gift of cash to their kid. They're way below 11 million lifetime gifting through 2020. It's, yeah, you know, it's not really going to make a difference. You'll report it. It's technically late, but it's also pretty much irrelevant in that case. So, again, that is a concern. It is an issue. But uh, the IRS ruled that way. Obviously, if it's really big, then we might see some litigation over the question. And that could talk about where the IRS under 7508 Cap A had the authority to only move the income tax deadline without moving what had previously been the related gift tax deadline. And then the second thing the IRS did was answer the question we discussed last week, which is the election to apply a 2020 return overpayment uh, from a May, you know, May 17th payment with an extension request. So this is the problem we talked about last week. Preparers traditionally have liked making big payments with extensions. 
The theory being, as I've heard told to me by multiple people over the years, is that, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I know, I think we're paid up perfectly. I don't think we really owe much of anything at the end of the year. But, you know, we don't, they don't have everything tied down yet. There's this K1 we're missing that, you know, we think we know what's coming, but we can't be sure what's coming on it. So instead of sending along $30,000 for the first estimate, we're going to go ahead and put $30,000 in with the extension. With the idea being that, yeah, it would cover the first estimate if everything goes the way we expect, but it gives us a little cushion in case it turns out that, hey, that K-1 comes along and we owe another $10,000 of tax. We were now timely paid as of the date we filed our extension. We're a little bit underpaid on our first estimate, but we'll work on it. Okay, that's how they do it. So we like this. And that generally worked fine because the extension due date was April 15. The first estimate for the next year was due April 15. And except for that one year, you know, that short period we talked about last time that was in the, I think in the 80s, when the IRS tried to move that application date to the date that returns ultimately filed, which didn't last very long. It's been held consistently now that whenever we file that, even if it's filed on October 15th, that overpayment will be treated as paid back on the April date, right? The date the money was sitting in there. Okay, that's good. Now the quit, but the problem this year is the IRS very, 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 the commissioner's been very clear. That estimate was due on Thursday of last week, right? April the, April the 15th, and he was not going to let you stretch that out to May 17th. Now, if you could pay on the extension at May and apply it back against the first estimate, well, that would be a very obvious way of getting around the first estimate problem. And to be honest, I heard CPAs who confidently believed that that was no problem. I was pretty sure it was a problem. Because I found that a lot of people that were very confident was no problem were confident only because they were reading the forms. It's like, God, the forms weren't written for this, and I don't care that for years it's always said mechanically it applies to the first quarter. It's like, what does the law say? And we talked about that last week. And the law is not totally clear, but it gives the strong belief that we have a problem here with a May due date for the 1040 and an April due date for the first extension. Well, the IRS gave us some clarify. And what they're going to say is, basically, we're going to look at if an overpayment existed at April 15th. If you had, the client had enough money withheld and amounts paid in, that could have been through estimates. It could have been because you filed the extension on Thursday and paid on Thursday. But if they had enough money paid in by April 15th of 2021 to be overpaid, them out, that amount of the overpayment, when applied, will apply against the first quarter estimate. If the taxpayer, let's say, pays an additional amount at May 17th, that amount will not apply until May 17th to the extent any of it or all of it is applied against the tax return or the estimated taxes for 2021. So you will have a month delay in there, right? So believe that that's already there. Now, again, this is a done deal. I do have some wonder about how the IRS is going to be able to enforce this particular rule. 
especially considering how mixed up things are right now. I don't know about what, where it stands, but I've heard a number of reports from people that clients that have been scheduled to have their money withdrawn on April the 15th, called up on the 16th and reported the money had not been taken out, whether it's been taken out. The interim is open, but the IRS is behind on that. I'm just not sure their systems are up to figuring out this particular, you know, splitting the hair on which date the money went in for. But in any event, the IRS has made clear what they believe the law is or what the law they claim they're going to be applying is. So be aware of that going forward. So at least for next year, and the other thing I say for sure about that is, I would say it's very, very likely that your tax software provider is going to apply that rule next year. So, you know, you'll be asked the date that the extent the extension was filed and the tax paid with that, and they're going to work that out. And they'll probably assume if you don't put a date in, they'll assume it's May. And then they probably will take a look at the refund for this year and figure out how much of that refund from the prior return was from amounts that were in estimates and withholding. That amount will count for first quarter. How much was after was with the extension. They'll put that with second quarter, presumably unless we flag it by telling them that the extension went in on April the 15th or earlier so that we could move that up to an earlier date. So just be aware of that for next year. This has been the current federal tax developments here for the week of what would have been tax day uh, and was somewhat tax day, at least, you know, for your C-Corps and your trusts and those estimates. It was tax day. Uh, we're going to go to the next tax day now on May 17th, which is the one we go just do it all over again for individuals. So get, get to keep working toward that. I know a lot of you, and I know this because on our mailing list, I get those bounce emails, vacation emails. Yeah, a lot of CPAs took off Friday. I'll phrase it that way. A lot of CPAs were not working on Friday. So I can tell you that for, you know, totally know that from reading the uh, email bounces that came in. So hopefully you're all going to be, you know, getting back to the office. You may find out about the payment fund. So we'll see how that goes and be ready to pick up for this final month push for individuals, which that ought to be fun. It's not quite as long as last year when it was till July, but we're going to get another month until May. And because of that, though, we will see you next week. Uh, we'll see what's going on, see what developments we have, what comes up in the areas of taxes, what else may be happening. If anything is moving at all legislatively, which right now appears complicated is the best way I'd phrase it. So I, I think we'll have I think we'll have plenty of time on this one before they decide get something out there. But we'll take a look, see what happens, look at the court cases, look at other rulings, and be back to you next week here with current federal tax developments.